Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Food Chain presented by Perfy. Today we've got Kirsten Sutaria, the co-founder of Wonder Lab's Doozy Pots with us today. Kirsten, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. We kick off every episode, Kirsten, with a little bit about the, the founder's story. Can you tell me more about yourself? Sure. So I, um, I grew up in, I guess, what you would call a foodie family before foodies was a thing. My parents owned restaurants when I was little. So I started in the kitchen probably around three years old, peeling carrots with my parents standing on a milk crate. So growing up, grew up around food. My mom worked in the wine industry. My dad worked in the food industry, uh, both as a chef and doing corporate product development for brands like Nestle and, and Cisco. So I really got exposed to food from a very young age. And then I realized that you could work with food and not have to work in the restaurant business. I love the restaurant business, but I I really saw that it doesn't necessarily lead to a, a great work-life balance. And when I realized that you could study food science in university and go into kind of product development roles, that really caught my eye. So right out of high school, I went to Cornell University to study food science uh, with a focus in operations and management. So kind of a balance of business, marketing, and food science. And then it was 2008 when I graduated and the economy was starting to get really weird. And I ended up starting with Unilever as a product developer doing frozen meal product development about five days after graduation. So really just dove right into it and developed Bertoli and P.F. Chang's frozen meals, which was just a really cool technical challenge and a fun project to work on right out of school. I grew up in Vermont, home of Ben and Jerry's. And when I moved there as a kid, one of the first things we did, we moved to the town of Waterbury, Vermont, which is, is where the factory tour for Ben and Jerry's is. And I remember going on the tour and seeing them cut open pints of ice cream with these two or three foot long knives and looking at the inside of pints. And I remember thinking like, that's a really cool job. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So two years after graduation, I, I lucked out and, and got a job as a product developer for Ben and Jerry's being a flavor guru, making new flavors, really diving into the science of ice cream. And I spent nine years at Ben and Jerry's doing product development in, in the US and in Europe, working on things like classic ice cream flavors. Um, I developed the Greek frozen yogurt. And then one of the last big projects I worked on was developing the Ben and Jerry's plant-based line and really getting deep into the science of ice cream to figure out how to make a product that looked like Ben & Jerry's, melted like it, scooped like it, tastes like it, without any of the sort of classic ingredients that were there. And it was while I was in the UK that I met my now husband. He had nothing to do with the food industry. He was a, a corporate tax lawyer in the UK. I met him through a friend that I had grown up with in Waterbury, Vermont. And it was just really nice to to have someone from our town of 4,000 people be in London at the same time I was. and really grateful to my friend Kyle who who introduced Carl and I and after Ben and Jerry's went to Innocent Drinks which is Europe's biggest little juice company very similar vibes to Ben and Jerry's and that it's a, a values-led company um, and I always said I would never really work for 
a company that I didn't believe in the product and I wouldn't buy myself. So I've always focused on these companies that have a, are a brand with a mission and, and really kind of walk the walk and are some of the early big companies that have kind of put the stake in the ground of being a values-led company. And that, that's really kind of driven my entire career. Amazing. I love how you and your husband pretty much have all of the executive roles covered between the two of you from product development to marketing, to business, to taxes, all of that seems like a a huge strength for you guys. Yeah. We always say if there was two of me, it would just be too wild. And if there was two of him, this would never happen. And it's Juicy Pots is still just the two of us. It's been the two of us for, for the last three years. And we have such complimentary skills that I won't say it makes this easy, but it makes make things things easier um, yeah. for both able to, to really lean into our strong suits. Yeah, it definitely doesn't hurt. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about the brand story. I love how you arrived at your name. And I'd love to share that with the audience. Sure. So we are Juicy Pots. Juicy Pots was probably the third name we had come up with. And Juicy Pots comes from my childhood nickname that my grandma on Long Island called us. And she'd be like, we're acting crazy. She'd say, don't be such a doozy pots. And doozy pots comes from the Italian saying, pazzo, which means thou art crazy or you're crazy. And it's a very regional sort of New York, Long Island name. It's really funny because I'll, I'll see people who don't know anything about the brand. And then they see the t-shirt and they're like, oh my God, your shirt says doozy pots. Like my cousins call each other doozy pots in Long Island. And it's a very regional thing. Um, but we'd come up with a few other names. And the one we were going to go with was Mellow, M-E-L-L-O-H. And we were going through some trademark work and for several reasons, figured out that it wasn't the best option for us. And you have this idea in your head and you're ready to go. And then you hit a roadblock and you're like, oh, great. Now we need to come up with a name. Coming up with a name, as you know, is like quite a big process. And it was late at night. I was in the kitchen and I do embody being a doozy pot. <laughs> I'm like a little bit all over the place. I'm a little bit of a klutz. And I spilled something in the kitchen. I was like, oh, I'm such a doozy pot. And then I was like, wait, should we call this doozy pots? And here we are, three years into doozy pots. I love that so much. Similar kind of thing happened with Perfy. I initially was going to create like better for you, I was frescas. And the name was going to be called, it was going to be called Chingon. A couple of different conversations led me to think, well, I've got to switch this up a bit. And at that same time, I see my mom every Saturday night. And one of those Saturday nights last year, she, she randomly told me the story of when I was two years old, she was putting on her makeup and she said, I grabbed her by her pocket and said, Ma, you're perfy. Oh, like that's the, so cute. <laughs> the light bulb went off. I was like, oh my God, that's it. This was meant to happen. And the next day I trademarked Perfy, started switching everything up, became a soda instead of a, like, that's why our first three flavors are um, super fruity flavors. And you can tell that we, we led with that, that fruit juice and the rest is history. That's such a great story. And I feel like Perfy, it's five letters. It's really snappy. It's memorable. It looks great on pack and having such a good story behind it really just solidifies how great of a name it is. Yeah. It means a lot to me. I, my mom helped me with pretty much everything in my life. And it's pretty cool to immortalize in a way, something that means so much. And even the the parent company is called Forzo Inc. And my mom's name is Zora. My middle name is Zoran. And my dog's name is Zoe. So Forzo has even a deep meaning to it as well. Love that. I want to drill in a little bit to the product. I love your flavors. And I didn't know 
that you worked at Ben and Jerry's. And it's like, it's like all coming together for me now because they're so interesting, delicious flavors. What are the things that you took out that were in traditional ice creams or frozen desserts that led you to create yours um, with a specific point of difference? And, and what is that point of difference? Sure. So I, um, when I got to Ben and Jerry's, one of my tasks was to create a new base mix for a Greek frozen yogurt. And there's a super experienced team there, great team of really lovely guys. And they were like, yeah, I've never like really made a mix before because Ben and Jerry's is classic and we know what our mix is. And so I was like, hey, I'll, I'll be the mix champion. And I really dove into like, what is the science of ice cream? And ice cream is one of the most complex foods we eat because it's a three-phase solution. It has solid, liquid, and gas in it, and it's an emulsion. And I'm not going to go into the deep, deep science of it, but it's just a really interesting food. And there are some, there's so much research been done on ice cream, and there are some rules that people kind of hold to, and, and you fit within those guardrails. But when you move into plant-based, a lot of those things fly out the window, which I learned in the kind of year that I spent just trying to develop a, a plant-based mix. Fast forward, I was at Innocent Drinks doing smoothies and juices. And, and a lot of my job and, and one of my favorite parts of my job is, is doing ingredient research and trend research. And I was reading a scientific journal article about the nutritional benefits of, of hemp seeds and hemp hearts. And I was like, whoa, these hemp is amazing. What a cool ingredient. And it's so sustainable. It's so nutritious. It's really functional. Why isn't anyone using this? This was 2018. And I realized no one was really using it because it was illegal to grow in the US. So it's finally, as of kind of early 2019, it's legal to grow, but there was no innovation and, and no creative work done with hemp because it was blacklisted and kind of bundled together with, with marijuana. Mm -hmm. And I got this bee in my bonnet. I was like, I think hemp would make an amazing base for plant-based ice cream, much better than nuts. and coconut. And I told my husband, Carl, about it. And he was like, yeah, okay. And him being a lawyer, he was like, okay, give me all the information. I'm going to go read about this and like poke holes in your argument, which is a great thing to have someone do for you. But also I was like, just listen to me. It's a great idea. And then I, I spent a year doing more ingredient research, supply chain research, product development at home in our kitchen in London and started to create products. And I just there's no hemp ice cream out on the market. We're made with a blend of, of hemp and oat. And oat was a little bit of a happy accident because we had moved from, from London to Cleveland to set up doozy pots. And we had submitted our recipes to the Department of Ag in our state. And they were like, you can't make products with hemp in it. And we were like, oh God, we just moved here to do this. Turns out we could make products with hemp in it. But even the Department of Ag was like, yeah, sorry, we don't really know much about this ingredient. So we've really been, been paving the way for hemp as an ingredient, trying to show people that hemp is an amazing plant-based alternative and really just being part of a group of brands that are, are building a supply chain for this ingredient. I originally worked with pea protein when I was at Ben and & Jerry's and, and that was early days of pea protein and watching what's happened with that in the last eight or nine years. My hope is that we can just help kind of pull hemp onto the same trajectory and introduce customers to the fact that hemp can be delicious, nutritious, sustainable. It's got a really great blend of healthy fats and proteins, really high in fiber, and it's a much more neutral taste and it's non-allergenic. So I think it, it wins over, over nuts and coconut any day. Are you finding that people 
are confusing him for because I, I noticed on your on your site and there's a, a bug that says no THC or CBD. Are people still confused about him? Short answer is yes. It really depends where you are. We see so much when we're demoing in suburban Cleveland, Ohio versus Denver versus LA or San Diego. Very different vibe. Uh, there's still so much consumer education that needs to be done. And we launched in 2019, which was kind of like peak CBD. So there was a loophole that people realized that if you're a CBD brand, you could call it full spectrum hemp oil and not really talk about the CBD. So then that actually created more confusion for hemp food companies that didn't use CBD. So there's definitely education that needs to be done. It varies by region. We also, our initial packaging on the the lid said in, in big bold text, like made with organic hemp, which we found to be to our detriment because it caught people's eyes first and they were like, oh, hemp, I don't know what that is. I don't want that. So we we kind of paired that back and, and like to say we're a, a plant-based ice cream that uses a blend of organic oat and hemp milk and it's more secondary tertiary communication. And our other big struggle is Meta still will not allow you to do paid advertising and use the word hemp in any advertising or any photos. So we've had our account shut down. We get dinged. So we've had to get really creative on actually not talking about our hero ingredient, which kind of sucks. And Meta's aware of it, but it's just, they say they have bigger fish to fry. So we, from an advertising perspective, are basically a class A, a company that's peddling class A, as we say the word hemp milk. That's so damn interesting to me because they're spending billions on the metaverse and even rebranded, but not not allowing your product to be advertised as though it's like a, an alcohol or something like that. It's like the equivalent of still using pagers or fax machines. It's it's so archaic and you would think that they would know the difference. At first, if you run an ad, you know, it's going through a bot and the bot says hemp and then you get thrown in the pile and, and then you escalate it and you appeal it and maybe one day you get to talk to someone and they're like, yeah, well, just don't say the word. And there's so much opportunity in hemp at every single place in the supply chain from the farmer that's putting the seed in the ground through to intermediary ingredient companies through to finished goods, food products. And there's so many people doing great stuff. And it's it's really just restrictive to not be able to talk about that. And, and how do you really build an industry if people don't even still view it as something that's just a food ingredient, like a hemp a hemp seed and a sesame seed and a sunflower seed should not be different from an, an advertising perspective. And there's a bunch of brands that are just really trying to push to say, hey, you know, if, if you want to build a domestic hemp industry, you really need to, to level the play, playing field for everybody. Absolutely. This reminds me a lot of allulose. Perfy is the first soda to, to be sweetened with allulose. And there's Stevia and Monkford as well, but very small amounts of those two. And I'm having trouble with allulose when it comes to whole foods. And I, and I knew this going in and part of R&D was like, hey, Vasa, are you sure you want to use this? Because you know whole foods doesn't allow it. And my prediction was that by the end of 2023, they will. And I'm not getting nervous yet, but it comes down to, to education because if canola oil is allowed in whole foods, which is known to be a, a very inferior oil, why aren't they allowing a sweetener that's natural to be used in products that is proven to be 
like metabolically sound. And it's a shock to me. There's brands out there like, like Mosh and Wonder Monday. And even um, there's a new kid creating cookies um, who has Ilos and not being able to have those, but they allow other products with other questionable ingredients is still a, a, a little bit confusing to me. Yeah, it's really hard. And it's, uh, you know, you're fighting the good fight, but you're coming up against agencies and bureaucracies that to get that change made can take so much time. But as a small brand, you're like, I don't have that amount of time. Like I want to get this to market and our consumers want it. And it's hard to be able to not get where you, you want to be to be, make sure you're in front of the right consumers. I may not have the time, but I sure as hell making it. My, my goal is in the next couple of months to assemble an allulose alliance. And that will be comprised of different founders with allulose in their products that cannot get into whole foods and, and doctors and, and metabolic health like specialists that can you know kind of put that paperwork together and say, hey, these, this is a sound ingredient. It's great for the human body. Here's the studies. Please, you know, have a read with this and, and let's try to change this so Whole Foods can be a better place for, to discover uh, ingredients and, and products that are that are looking to serve the consumer rather than take away from them. Exactly. And we're, we're doing a similar thing with hemp and, and working to bring together hemp food companies and working with state legislators to, to send letters to them and pushing on Facebook and Meta to say, hey, this is actually restriction of trade. Because if, you know, if you have an almond milk ice cream and I have a hemp ice cream or a cashew cheese and a hemp cheese, like you're restricting our ability to market. And as a small brand, as much as I don't necessarily want to be doing paid advertising, it's it's still a good way to reach people. So we've had to get a little bit creative. And it's these type of things where like, yeah, you've got to make the time, even if you don't have it as a founder. And it's a little distractionary, but I think we'll get there in the end. 100%. You know, one of my questions was, what is one kind of barrier that you've run into in, in your startup? And I think we've already answered that question. So I'm going to, I'm going to move on to the next one, which is talking a little bit about a sustainability. And I'd love to know your, your thoughts on the state of specifically CPG. Let's keep it to CPG for now, and specifically food and beverage. Are you seeing that sustainability is for some brands maybe a true cause of theirs, a true like North Star. And for some others, it's it's more of just marketing. For sure. We were a two-person brand. We focus on organic, regenerative, and we spend probably five times more time figuring in our supply chain and figuring out like the right way to do this than others do. But it's just something that's so important to us. Using things like sugar and cocoa, those are pretty murky supply chains that often we say we want to be a brand that does better for the planet and, and is kinder to the people that, that grow these ingredients and making sure people are getting paid fair wages. There's so many touch points in a food supply chain. And sometimes you see brands that are out there and maybe they're organic, but that's as far as they go. But that doesn't necessarily look at the whole true cost of getting that ingredient into the product and that product to market. What suppliers do you work with? What co-packers do you work with? You know, we've run the gamut to look at co-packers and been to one that was literally burning their trash in a field behind the factory. We work with one now that, you know, is is much more eco-friendly, <laughs> eco-minded, and that's a fit for our business. And you have to look at everything. And, and I see some of these new kind of more eco-friendly brands come to market so quickly. 
and you wonder like, what are they actually doing? And, and are they truly walking that walk? And I think if you peel the curtain back, the answer would be no, which is unfortunate because I think it devalues some of the work um, that people who are truly doing it are doing. I hear you there. You know, Perfy is, is not like one of our reasons to believe in Perfy definitely isn't our sustainability efforts, but I have, I do my best to, to mitigate any sort of extreme gas emissions. We have one ingredient, ashwagandha, that comes from India, probably the best place to get it. And we have one juice that comes from Canada and everything else is sourced domestically. And I find it hard sometimes to look at brands that on one hand will kind of preach sustainability, but on the other hand, we'll say we have supply chain issues because you know our the ships are in the port of San Pedro stuck. And I feel like if so many ingredients are coming from so many different places, it's probably not that good for the environment. Is that a right way to think about it or or am I am I off base there? 110%. And there's um, as you know, like with ashwagandha, is there a domestic source for ashwagandha? No, but if you need to go to one of these regions, how do you find the best possible option? And I don't think there's anything wrong with sourcing non-domestic ingredients, as long as you're very, very cognizant of what that whole supply chain looks like. You know, if you're going to use coconut water, chances are it's going to come from Southeast Asia. If you need to go out there and visit the farm, see what they're doing, make those connections, build those relationships. And oftentimes people are doing the right thing, but it takes probably triple the amount of, of work and, and seeing brands that are putting in the work. And I think we're seeing more and more seeing those brands do that are the future. You know, people, especially young consumers, want to know every single thing about your brand. And right now we're getting, everyone's getting crunched with ingredient cost increase, but we pay probably 50 to 70% more for our organic cane sugar, which is regeneratively certified. And it comes from Brazil. And there's a pioneering project there called the Green Cane Project, which is a, a no-burn cane operation. Most cane sugar, they burn the fields at the end of every harvest, which is incredibly detrimental to the environment. And for 20 plus years, the Green Cane Project has pioneered a way to not do that. Does that hit my margin? Yes. Is it the right thing to do? Yes. So looking at the true cost of ingredients versus just the cost of what it costs to get into your product is definitely the way of the future for us. One thing that I think would be cool is I haven't done it yet. It's something that's on my mind and on a checklist, but is to dive deeper into like there's a, there's a company called Imperfect Foods and they sell produce that's, you know, it, it won't be sold on shelf because maybe it's a different shape than what the consumer wants or those sorts of things. I would love to investigate how I can use, I don't even know if it's called upcycled fruit, but fruits that normally can't be sold. Every, every you know, box of, of strawberries that I buy has like 10 or 12 different strawberries that are kind of a little bit older than the others, or at least bruised. What would it look like to use those, but not from concentrate? Perfy doesn't use any concentrates. I think that would be a cool partnership is to make delicious juice from fruits that can't be sold on shelf in the produce section and put them to good use. 110%. I think, have you tried the chips called Pulp Pantry? Yes. Love them. Great product. Amazing way of upcycling a waste stream. And we used to live in London and I found that there were some brands there that were kind of early pioneers in this sort of ugly or in the UK, they call it wonky produce and creating value add product out of produce that 
is perfectly delicious, but maybe doesn't meet size standards or color standards or has a bump or a bruise on it. And especially if you're using things like juices, it doesn't matter how big that strawberry is or if that orange has a few brown spots on the outside, still can make great juice. I recently saw a cool brand. I haven't tried them yet. I'm trying to hold off on the potato chips because those are my kryptonite. But mm. there's a new brand called Uglies. They're made from potatoes that are quote unquote ugly. Like they're not the right size or shape or whatever it may be. And they make these really delicious, delicious looking because I haven't tried them. Chips, and I just saw them on the sprout shelf. And one of these days when I, I get that hankering and I can justify it, I'm going to grab a bag of those and see what they're all about. Oh, I just checked them out. What cool branding. We're actually heading out to San Diego next week to do some sprouts demos. So, you know, once you stand in a grocery store for a few hours, you definitely leave with a few snacks. Amazing. Yeah, you got to try them. Let me, let me know what they're like. The next question is more advice for listeners. I, I try to get one question in every episode about for folks who are looking that have a, a real passion for sustainable practices, where can they start? What resources are there for them to investigate supply chains and ultimately land on whatever it is that they're going to create? I feel like we could have a whole other hour about that. Um, <laughs> so really, we look at a great place to start is actually the UN Sustainable Development Goals. That's one. And then also looking at brands that you love. So if you're, for us, you know, we, we like to walk the walk and try to buy as many sustainable brands as possible and, and look at different certifications? Is it upcycled certified? Is it organic? Is it organic regenerative certification? Go to those certifying boards. They'll often um, show you what brands they work with. And then you can do some research into those brands. What are they doing? I think a great example of a brand that has really owned sustainability is, is Dr. Bronner's Soap. And they just launched a chocolate company, which you think, so chocolate, how are those two platforms connected? But they are very well connected given that the area where they were sourcing some of their oils for their soaps also was a cacao growing region. And they figured how can we help them grow organic regenerative cacao in conjunction with the oil plants that they're growing for us for our soap. And just for us, it's always, you know, looking at brands who are best in class, brands like Alter Eco with their chocolate and then really diving into their sustainability story. Who are they working with? What do their supply chains look like? That's the way I do it. And just seeing you know, what new products are coming out. And, and I think for us, the future of Juicy Pots, it's where we source the ingredients, who's doing or organic and regenerative. And maybe we're not going to launch what a flavor that's quote unquote on trend, but we're going to launch a flavor that makes use of ingredients that are grown in a similar region or are grown on a farm where we're already sourcing ingredients from. That's fantastic advice. Um, going back to Dr. Bronner's, I, I love their packaging and I, I think it's so complex, but it's actually pretty simple. One thing I've got to admit is I've never read the entire package. Do you think anybody's ever read that? I think people who take long showers probably, have. <laughs> uh, but I don't, I don't think I've ever read the whole thing yeah. either. And I grew up in Vermont, which is just, such a crunchy place. I love it. And, you know, we did a lot of early 90s health food store shopping. And I, I feel like Dr. Bronner's has always just been such a stalwart in that type of shop. And it's really cool to see it now become like a cool, fun mainstream brand for people. I'm just waiting for one of these days for them to do like an April Fool's limited edition branding where it's a bunch of different jokes or like something on that where if people actually read it, they'll, they'll have like a nice reward at the end. Love that. Where can everyone find you, Kirsten? 
We're available in our home area of Cleveland, Ohio, in all Heinen's and Market District stores. And then outside of Ohio, we are in Sprouts nationally. We're in Erewhon in the Los Angeles region. And we're in Jimbo's Naturally down in San Diego. And what about social? Social, we are at Doozy Pots on Instagram and on TikTok. And we're on Facebook at wonderlab.doozy. Awesome. And your website is wonderlabdoozy.com. Yes. Awesome. Kirsten, it was an absolute joy speaking with you. I really appreciate your time and, and thank you for joining this episode. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great to chat and I look forward to meeting in real life soon. Likewise. Can't wait. Have a great day. You too. Thanks.